don't hurry me. <laughs> yeah, okay. <clears throat> Before I begin the talk tonight, I wanted to um, just say a couple of words about one of my teachers, Master Shengyan, who is a, uh, a Chan master. He's in his upper 70s. He's almost 80 at this point, and he's quite sick. And I was able to spend time with him in um, November, this past November. And it's probably the last time he'll come to the States. But he began the retreat by saying, "Um, until the end of my life, I give you my body. And during the retreat, he ended up leaving three times to go to the hospital to get dialysis. So he gave the first couple of talks, and then he left that night and uh, spent the day in the hospital, went through the dialysis, came back in the evening, gave a talk. Next day, gave a talk, morning talk, evening talk. Next day, uh, hospital for the dialysis, and that's how the retreat went. So I'm basically saying this so that if I have a coughing attack during the the talk, not to be concerned because it's really just coughing. It's just that. There is this one way, O practitioners, to help living beings realize purification, overcome grief and sorrow, end pain and anxiety, travel the wise path, and realize liberation. This way is the four foundations of mindfulness. This quote is from the Satipatthana Sutra, which basically might be the sutra that you would want with you if you had to choose only one. It has a great deal of the the Buddhist teachings contained within it. The word sutra means discourse, and the word sati means mindfulness, and the word patana means foundation or to establish. So the Satipatthana Sutra translated means the four foundations of mindfulness or establishing mindfulness in four ways. So it's four ways of being present. And basically, of course, this means the awareness of this body-mind process. And we can see that these four foundations of mindfulness, these four ways of being present, really make up our world. Included is the body, the first foundation of mindfulness being the body. And, of course, this includes the breath, and it includes sensations in the body and how the body changes when we're healthy, when we're sick, as we get older. It also includes what's called Vedana, or the texture of our experience from moment to moment. So what this means is in each moment, the texture of our experience is either pleasant or unpleasant or neither pleasant nor unpleasant. Mildly pleasant, extremely 
um, mildly pleasant, um, <laughs> neutral, in other words. And this is applied to both the body and the mind. So applied to the body, it's sensations in the body being pleasant, unpleasant, and neutral. Applied to the mind, it means thoughts and emotions, that every thought, every emotion is either pleasant or unpleasant or neutral. And this is a very basic level of life, this texture um, of our experience. So the second foundation of mindfulness has to do with this texture, pleasant, unpleasant, neutral. The third foundation of mindfulness are thoughts and feelings. So whatever thoughts and feelings are occurring, this has to do with the third foundation. And the fourth foundation of mindfulness um, is the laws of experience. So it means noticing impermanence. Awareness itself is contained in the fourth foundation of mindfulness. Um, It means being aware, noticing that things are not as they appear to be. It means being aware of the substancelessness of phenomena. So these are the four ways of being present that the Buddha talked about. And the Buddha said, in contemplating these four ways of being present, the heart detaches from its torments and is liberated. In contemplating these four ways of being present, the heart detaches from its torments and is liberated. I should say, I always say things like this twice, and it's not because I think you don't hear it. It's more because for me, when I hear something the first time, I always want to hear it another time. So that's why I'm repeating it. Why does this happen? Why is this so? Because it's only by being in contact that we can understand ourselves and life. Only through contact, connection, can we understand ourselves and life. The Buddha said, only what mindfulness contemplates can wisdom understand. I really love this. Only what mindfulness contemplates can wisdom understand. In other words, there has to be contact. You could say mindfulness is contact, contact with our experiences. And then out of this contact, understanding, emerging. This is the connection between mindfulness and wisdom. When there is the contact that mindfulness offers, then we are living the teachings not just out of intellectual understanding. You know, as interesting as these teachings are, sometimes we can get quite fascinated by them in an intellectual way, and you know, they can really grab our mind. That's why I, I think this path is kind of endless, because there's some, always something to understand. Um, But without contact, it's only intellectual. And the contact allows us to seep. It allows the the dharma to seep into our bones so that it's alive, so that we're living the dharma. So all through this week, we've been hearing about mindfulness. That was just kind of a bit of a, a recap of what we've been hearing about. And 
probably most of us at this point think it's a good idea. You know, probably. Not, maybe not everybody. I'm still considering. But probably most of us think it makes sense and it's a good idea to be mindful as much as we can. And we can see that mindfulness is a choice. You know, sometimes we have that choice to be awake and aware, and we don't take it. You know, it really is a choice. And the question is, why do we so often times choose disconnection? We choose disconnection because mindfulness is perceived as a risk. And this is what I'd like to speak about tonight, the risk of mindfulness. Yanai was asking me what I meant by the risk of mindfulness, and I said he'd have to listen to the talk. <laughs> so. so a large aspect of mindfulness is learning to trust mindfulness contact over thinking, over our thoughts. To be mindful is to be present, and we fear being present at times. If we are fully present, perhaps we fear that the moment will be unbearable, that there will be an unbearableness about it. We may have the belief that before we allow ourselves to be present, before we kind of permit ourselves to be present, we have to fix ourselves, you know? We have to be perfect before we can let go, or at least almost perfect. You know, things need to be in line in some way. We need to have figured out this or figured out that before we allow ourselves to let go into the here and now. We may possibly fear finding a hollowness within in being present. We might be afraid that if we're present and we don't preoccupy ourselves with this and that, fantasies and plans and regrets and worries, that what we'll find within will be nothing. And we might be afraid of of, um, what could be called the hollow heart, a sense of endless void or um, endless despair or what I sometimes call little e emptiness, you know? We sometimes are afraid that that's what we're going to find, you know, that all of the teachings, they come to a certain point, and we're not included in them, you know? And some people have Buddha nature within, and others don't, and I'm one of them, you know? (laughs) And so when I'm present, when I'm aware, I'm going to discover this, and it's going to be so devastating that I won't be able to bear it. No? So this, this concern about what we will find when we are present in a sustained kind of way. Of course, in being present, over and over again, we are meeting ourselves, and we don't always like what we see. One teacher said that the practice is just, you know, you just have, it's almost like just one insult after another. You know? Over and over again being insulted. You know? and, we, and we're into it. We put ourselves into the situation. Gandhi put it in a slightly different way. He said, I have only three enemies, 
My favorite enemy, the one most easily influenced for the better, is the British Empire. My second enemy, the Indian people, is far more difficult. But my most formidable opponent is a man named Mohandas K. Gandhi. With him, I seem to have very little influence. <laughs> I'm sure we can all resonate with this. <laughs> it is a perceived risk to let go of our pasts. Yeah. Of course, our past really is gone, so we're not really letting go of anything. But our thoughts about the past, it's perceived as a risk to let go of our thoughts about the past. We might believe that we have to work out the past, that we can't be present until we understand it. And it's also true that the past has formed our identity in, in really sometimes a quite strong way. You know, who am I without my past? You know, who in the world am I without my history and my experiences and my age and my gender and all of these kinds of things? Who am I? And this, of course, can be quite frightening. It is a perceived risk to let go of our habits. What is there when judging? and worrying and rehearsing are not. You know, what really is there? It is a risk to let go of the known. And of course, when we're mindful, we are opening to the unknown. So it's a risk to let go of the known. <clears throat> over and over again, this practice invites us to leap. And as we accept this invitation over and over again, we gradually discover, each one of us for ourselves, a trust in being present. In risking letting go of our habits of evaluating and of planning and of trying to figure things out and fix and change and improve ourselves and definitely try to improve others. As we let go of these kinds of habits, in choosing mindfulness instead of perpetuating our habits, it's a little bit like breaking up with old friends. You know? Old friends that have been around for a really long time that are comfortable. You know, they may indeed be limiting. They may not be meeting us in the way they used to. You know, in being with them, it might not be serving the same purpose as it used to. And yet, they're old and familiar. And so we're, we're bonded, we're attached. You know, so in letting go of the habits, oftentimes it's a little bit like asking ourselves to let go of our old friends, our f favorite fantasies. Even, you know, could be really, you know, strong fantasies, but we can have fantasies about being enlightened, you know, <laughs> things like that. But letting go of these kinds of, of favorite fantasies and ideas about how we want things to be or how we need things to be. Now, of course, it's not easy to be present when 
physical or emotional pain is our experience. And Yanai spoke about that so beautifully last night, how difficult it is to be present in the midst of physical pain and emotional pain. But tonight I'd just like to read you something by Tofu Roshi about this. It's another of my teachers, Tofu Roshi. An aspect of Zen practice that is difficult for Americans, and particularly Californians, (laughs) to accept is the pain in the knees that so often accompanies meditation. And the idea that one should not move, should not try to get away from it, but simply accept it. In California, you are supposed to do what feels good. In some parts of the United States, like New York and Boston, suffering comes more easily to the inhabitants. It's pretty much true. But even there, the tradition tends to be one of mental rather than physical anguish. Tofu Roshi worked patiently to teach us that even in America, even in California, life is suffering whether you know it or not. You're suffering when you have pain in your knees, and you're suffering when you think you're having fun. (laughs) He made up a chant for us, I accept the pain that visits my knees like hummingbird to honeysuckle. We suffer no matter what state we are in, including California. (laughs) Sitting is suffering. Surfing is suffering. (laughs) With all beings, we accept our pain. Halfway through a long meditation retreat when my knees were feeling exactly like honeysuckle flowers being pierced by the sharp bill of a hummingbird, it was very comforting to chant this chant together with my fellow sufferers. When we try to push away our pain and resist it, which is the most natural thing to do in the world, I mean, of course one wants to resist and push away pain, right? I mean, it's, it's natural. But when we do this, and when we take it up as a habit or as a pattern, there's no inner resolution that can come about. No. We are caught in the habit of resistance. And no real inner freedom is possible. We're caught within conditions. So what we need to do is we need to learn more about our resistance. It's not that we want to judge it. Because you can hear the teachings and, you know, as we get more and more sophisticated, we judge more and more because we didn't even know it was a problem before we began to meditate. And then we begin to meditate and we find out, you know, it is whatever it is is seemingly a problem. So it's not to judge our resistance, which is a natural thing to do. It's seeing if it's possible to learn about our resistance, to take it up, to befriend it, to become more interested in our resistance. You know, to see what happens when resistance is occurring. To see if we're identified with it as I am a resistant person or something along those lines. You know, it is in the very nature of practice to resist. So not to take it as something personal. All yogis and yoginis resist. You know, we can feel ourselves part of the whole when we recognize this, that it is not something that's personal. As Nisargadatta said, who was... uh, 
Indian beady roller in India who happened to wake up. He said that we resist each step along the way to enlightenment. In other words, resistance is going to be part of things until we are totally free. We resist each step along the path to enlightenment. So instead of resisting the resistance or judging the resistance, is it possible to look into the resistance, to see what its function is, to see if there's another way of working with it, if there's another more creative way of working with it than we found thus far. However, we do not want to bow down to it either. We want to learn about it. We want to accept it. We want to sense it as something that everybody does, so it's not personal to me. But at the same time, we don't want to give it more power than it really has. We don't want to obey its call. We don't want to bow down to it. We want to see if we can take it up and be quite gentle and compassionate and caring when resistance is occurring to see if it's possible to actually tangibly feel it, experience it. Oftentimes when we are able to fully experience our resistance, the original problem is no longer a problem. The resistance has itself is what the problem is, has been what the problem is. So is it possible for us to be aware of it and just instead of just thinking it's the way it has to be? In other words, not bowing down to it. We do have to trust something deeper than our conditioning in order to continue on this path. When we encounter difficulties, when we encounter situations such as irritation and longing and aversion and inertia and doubt and agitation and restlessness and boredom, and you can add on to this list, feel really free. It's not easy to trust mindfulness in that moment. When things are going well, sometimes we can be very, very happy about the practice and think, oh, yes, of course I trust mindfulness, you know, of course. But it's often when a really pleasant moment is occurring, nothing really wrong is happening, And we're really asked to trust mindfulness in every moment. Our instinct when the difficulty is occurring is to absorb into it, is to glom onto it and absorb into it, instead of being with it with affectionate observation. And this is really the switch we want to make. Now, is it possible to approach our difficulties with affectionate observation instead of absorbing into, instead of trying to fix and get rid of. Oftentimes in experiencing difficulties, every bone in our body is saying, I've got to do something about you. And this can get more subtle, actually, because, of course, when we begin the practice, I've got to do something means to jump up and run out of the room. But you know, it gets really subtle, and we can just notice in our minds a very subtle, something's wrong, you know, something has to be done about this. I'm doing something wrong. I'm not practicing it correctly. I'm a failure, you know, 
And, and it's, all, it's this impulse to do that we want to notice. We want to instead learn how to gently hold our difficulties, our experiences, with spaciousness and with acceptance, instead of relating to the inner torments with inner torment. Instead of relating to the inner torments with inner torment. Because we can't choose what's going to arise from moment to moment. This is out of our control. Where we have some say-so is in how we relate to our experiences, our relationship to our experiences. So letting whatever arises arise, because we don't have anything to say about that anyway, we might as well. Letting everything that arises arise and, and contemplating its disappearance. Contemplating its disappearance, understanding that everything comes out of silence and everything goes back into silence. Everything emerges out of stillness, out of silence. All phenomena, all experiences, and everything as well disappears, goes back into inner silence and inner stillness. The present moment is surely an acquired taste. When we first come to practice, and by first coming to practice, this could mean our first 20 years. You know, it depends. <laughs> Just depends. Everybody's so different. But we hear, be present, and it makes sense, and you know, it sounds like a good thing. It's even more in the culture these days that to be present is a good thing. I think a lot in the culture operates to make us not present, but certainly it's a little more out there as uh, seen as, as a good thing. But really, truly, I think it's important to recognize that it's an acquired taste. And it comes about, we, we, we develop this taste through our practice. You know, it, it is, it's not just supposed to be there. It's something that develops sometimes quite slowly, through our practice. And so we can trust that it will develop in our dedication to doing our best, as each one of us is already doing, as I know. The conditioning that we have is to find the present to be confining, you know, to find the present moment to be boring, to think that the present is not stimulating enough. We come into this retreat environment, and sometimes we skid to a stop when we get here because of the lack of stimuli that we're used to in our everyday lives. So we come here, and there's very little stimuli occurring, designed, set up, for there to be very little stimuli happening. And... Within the lack of stimuli, because we're used to stimuli, we're habituated to reacting to stimuli, we don't know what to do with ourselves. And so sometimes we might think, ah, I've discovered how things are. You know, life is boring. Life, <laughs> life is like this. Life, life is like that. Yeah? And, and obviously, obviously, this is an error. We need to continue to practice in this way. 
roaming about in the past and the future. You know, it can seem so expansive. It's so amazing what the mind can do, huh? You know that we're we're here, we're actually in this room, we're in this town, we're in this country, and in two seconds we can be in another country ten years ago, and it can feel so real. You know? It can feel so real. And because of what the mind can do, there can be a certain sense of space of um expansiveness about that. We can feel like, oh, letting my mind do what it wants to do is the way to really have the sense of expansiveness that I'm looking for. But actually, it's a false sense of expansion. When we're roaming around in the past and the future, in fantasy, in planning, in worrying, the problem is that we always have to come back. We never can stay in this mind image that we've concocted. Even if we put brick by brick, and we know exactly what to think that's going to bring us to a very pleasant state. You know, we've, we've kind of supported it moment by moment, and we know the kind of thoughts or the kind of stories that are going to bring us into something very pleasant. It collapses. The problem is it collapses, and we always have to come back to the here and now. You know, there's that saying, wherever you go, there you are, which came from Buckaroo Banzai, by the way. Um, Buckaroo Banzai was a bad movie many, many years ago, but there was this one line in it that was fantastic. Uh, So it's the same thing. We always have to come back. Slowly, we develop a love for the present moment. We find ourselves less enchanted with that which isn't now. Less intrigued, less fascinated, less interested, less enchanted by that which isn't now. Gradually, what grows within us is a hard-won taste for reality. We learn to love and trust being here. And we're actually not as interested in the past and in the future, in planning and in worrying and in fantasizing. That interest quite naturally begins to drop away. We can trust the naturalness and the organic nature of this. It begins to drop away. Because of our past pain, oftentimes the present is seen as an enemy. And so we have to learn for ourselves that it is safe. It is actually the only safe place to be. When we're lost in our minds, when we're preoccupied, we're off balance. We're not here, and it's not all that safe. When we learn to be here more, we sense and we see that it is the true safe place to be. The practice is trusting the heart to trust in its own experiences. Because our tendency is to trust the mind of thoughts and fears and judgments and opinions. Trusting in the heart is to trust the senses. Just smelling, just tasting, just seeing, just hearing, just touching, 
just feeling, just thinking, you know, to trust the just part of this and move into a listening, a deep listening, a sensing, a receiving, and a responding. Over and over again, relaxing into the here and now. I have a beloved niece who is now 14. But when she was really small, when she was quite little, we used to call her up and chat with her. We still call her up and chat with her. But we used to call her and have these conversations. And, you know, we'd say to her, hey, so what are you doing right now? And what she would say over and over again, we kind of never learned because she would just say this over and over again was, I'm talking to you. (laughs) The subtext being, you idiot. You know? (laughs) Because of course that's what she was doing, was talking to us. Yeah, of course. This is relaxing into the now. When we try to be mindful, we can see it as some kind of something that's idealized, like if we were really mindful, then things would be like this. (coughs) Whatever our idea of being like this is. Let me get it out. (coughs) We miss the mark. In a way, you could say we overshoot. Instead, what we're interested in is keeping up with life, keeping up with ourselves, instead of lagging behind or hurrying ahead. Mindfulness is a freshness. It's the absence of the habitual The absence of the habitual gives space for inner seeing. In taking the risk of being mindful, we find, we discover that it's actually not really a risk at all. It offers what our hearts yearn for. The risk of mindfulness is that we will discover freedom. We might discover freedom. And Really, it's the discovery, the risk of living a full life, a risk of living a life that is in intimacy with all things. False ideas about who we are drop away, and what is left is a luminous knowing. I'd like to just read you something very short by Wordsworth. While with an eye made quiet by the power of harmony and the deep power of joy, we see into the life of things. This is allowing space in the heart for life to reveal itself. Let's just sit for a moment or two.
while with an eye made quiet by the power of harmony and the deep power of joy, we see into the life of things. May all beings have ease of mind. May all beings have comfort of life. May all beings accept the invitation of mindfulness. Mm-hmm.